0: If you've got a Bible, you can open with me to Mark chapter 9. We've been working through a series of messages entitled Our Savior King. And that series of messages comes out of Mark's gospel. We've been in it for a while now, and we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 9, uh, taking a look at verses 2 to 13. Uh, those verses will be on the screen here as we read them together. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures open on your couch or at your dining room table today, we encourage you to follow along as we read the Scriptures from which our message will come this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, we'll read down through verse 13 together. Mark writes these words, And six days G- after six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him." You know, some of the most spectacular sights I've ever seen in my life have come on those occasions in which I've had a chance to ascend to the top of a mountain, Uh, whether it be on a ski trip or whether it be on a hiking trail. But whenever you ascend to the top of a mountain, you get up above the tree line. A number of things that you'll notice. First of all, the air is very thin, and yet your perspective is is heightened to a massive degree because it's there's it's crystal clear there's no there's no cloud if there's no clouds there's no fog you can see for miles and miles and miles and miles on end you can see things that you never would have seen down in the valley or in amongst the trees see whenever you ascend up above the tree line things become very clear to you that were perhaps only shadows prior to that ascension, prior to that climb. And listen, here in our text, I want you to know that whenever Peter, James, and John, they go up the mountain with Jesus, whenever they ascend this high mountain and they see Jesus transformed before their faces, they get a degree of clarity that they never would have had before. Because see, not only do our physical mountaintop experiences give us a degree of sight, that we never possessed previously, but also those spiritual mountaintop experiences that many of us have experienced over the course of our lives, whether it be at camps or whether it be on retreats or whether it be in our study or in our room as we open the Word or we spend time in prayer. We've all had those moments where the presence of God is not only acknowledged intellectually, but it's sensed on our hearts. And listen, those thing, those moments have the 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 power to change our perspective, the way that we see and what we see. And so this morning as we take a look at the transfiguration of Jesus, I want us to see ask this question, what, like, why is this text here? And I believe the reason this text is here for us is to teach us this, that we must, if we desire to be a follower of Jesus, we must have those moments in which we behold the glory of Jesus. We behold the glory of Jesus. You see, when Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus, they have a moment of intense clarity as they see Jesus as they had never seen Him before. See, on the heels of Jesus, issuing some hard words about what it means to follow Him, He takes these three disciples with Him up the mountain and He is transfigured before them in verse 2, we're told that, they, that He's transfigured before them. In verse 3, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So no amount of Clorox or Purex or anything else could turn His clothes the dazzling color of white that they became as light radiated from Him, the glory radiated from Him. See, these disciples essentially, whenever they ascend the mountain with Jesus and they get a sense of who He is on their hearts and before their eyes, they have a foretaste because the the, the transfiguration is a foretaste of the resurrection when Jesus would be revealed for who He is. It's also a a foretaste of His second coming when He's revealed even more fully for who He is as a conquering king, one who's risen over the grave and returns to set everything right. So when Peter, James and John see Jesus like this, they're getting a taste of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 12 when he says, "Now, now today we behold things in a mirror dimly, but then that day one day we shall see face to face." And see what Peter, James and John see is they see the glory of God in the person of Jesus face to face. They see Jesus in all of His splendor. They see Jesus in all of His majesty, in all of His glory, in all of His wonder. They see His beauty. They see His magnificence. They see His purity. They see His power. They they see Jesus for who He is. It's as if there's a veil that is removed... And they see now Jesus, as Paul speaks of even in 1 Corinthians. He says now, when he he talks about the veil that we, we all once lived with, it's been removed as we see the majesty and beauty of Jesus. They have that experience before anyone else does. And listen, it's no earthly glory. It's not the glory of, a, of the king of, of Persia or the king of, of Assyria, It's not the glory of the king of the pharaohs in Egypt or of the emperor in Rome. That's not the kind of glory we're talking about. While they wore right white robes, the text is very clear that no one on earth. In other words, the source of this glory is not something that can be manufactured or created here, but it's something that's come from heaven. It's something that has come from God Himself as they behold the glory of Jesus atop this mountain. And as they behold the glory of Jesus, there's at least three things we learn about Him through the process. And the first one is this. Listen, church. The first one is this, that He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Listen, in verse 4, we see alongside of Jesus, there are two figures from the Old Testament. You see, Moses shows up and Elijah shows up. Now, if you think about who these individuals represented in the Old Testament, Moses was the one who met with the Lord, received the law on the tablets, came down the mountain in order to give the commandments to God's people. So he was the the recipient and distributor of God's commands, of His law. So when when the people talked about Moses, they talked about him as a prophet, yes, but ultimately as the lawgiver, the law receiver and the lawgiver. Elijah was one of the most powerful and influential prophets in the Old Testament. You remember Elijah? He had his challenges. Okay? He went through some struggles and seasons of depression. But ultimately, there at the top of Mount Carmel, he has his own mountaintop experience as he calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice and basically put to shame all the 450 prophets of Baal to demonstrate that God is the true God, the only God who is worthy of the people's worship. And so you had Moses as a representative of the law and Elijah as a representative of the prophets. And there they stand with Jesus as representatives of the old covenant. Of the way in which God's presence had been known and God's voice had been heard in the Old Testament. The old way of doing things. And yet in verse 8, I want you to notice something. Whenever the cloud clears, there's no one standing there other than Jesus. In other words, it's Mark's way of saying that in that moment there is a changing of the guard, so to speak. Right? So Jesus stands as the, the only one left as the law has been fulfilled and as the prophets, the promises and predictions and prophecies of the prophets have come to their fruition. Listen, Jesus himself says it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. In other words, everything that Moses gave you and everything that Elijah represents to you, he says, I've not come to set those things aside, but I've come to fulfill them. And Jesus would fulfill them. How would he fulfill the law? He would fulfill the law by living a life of sinless perfection. In other words, everything that the law required, Jesus accomplished. He had no other gods before his Father. Right? He did not covet the anything that anyone had. Right? He was faithful to the very end. He did not take anything from anyone. Right? He, he recognized his dependency upon the father and withdrew for times of sabbath and rest so he fulfills the 10 commandments he fulfills the entire ceremonial law he fulfills the entire uh, 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 le- judicial law or or, or 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 what theologians might call the theocratic law the governmental law that israel was ruled with he fulfills that as the king he fulfills the ceremonial law as the priest and as the sacrifice he fulfills the moral law through his life of perfection He fulfills the entire law. And the prophets, as they predicted things about him, Jesus ultimately, right, he's he's like, Jesus is like the fingerprint of the prophets, right? There's only, when you do the math, there's only one person who could have fulfilled all the predictions and prophecies of this, this, the the suffering servant or or of the, the Messiah from the Old Testament. So he fulfills all these things. And he himself says it in Luke chapter 24, Following his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus, and he has a conversation with a few of his disciples. And through the course of that conversation, they're talking about everything that's just transpired in Jerusalem, Jesus' death, all the uproar that came with that. And over the course of that conversation, Jesus is listening to them. He has veiled Himself from them in that moment. But when He finally reveals Himself to them, listen to what Luke says in Luke 24, verse 25, that He says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses and Elijah, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. He goes back and says, all of this back here was about me. It was all pointing to me. So Jesus says He's come to fulfill that. And then the author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the righteous requirements and commandments of God, and the prophets. All that God has promised, all that God has predicted, all that God has prophesied has come to fruition in and through the person of Jesus. That's a part of the glory that Peter, James, and John are beholding. That's what it teaches us about Him. There is no one else who could fulfill and bring to fruition everything that Jesus Did and has. That's the first thing. Second thing that we learn about Jesus here is that he is the object of our worship. He's the object of our worship. Listen, in Exodus chapters 33 and 34, we read about Moses going up onto the mountain to meet the Lord for a second time. Remember the first time he goes up, things don't turn out real well when he comes down. He goes up and he receives the tablets and commandments, and he comes down, and he finds the people at the bottom of the mountain, and they have all taken their jewelry and melted it down, and they've said to Aaron, "Hey, build us a God. Make us an idol." And so when Moses returns down, he shatters the tablets of stone because the people are surrounding this golden calf that they've constructed. They've taken off all their necklaces and bracelets and earrings and anklets and everything else. They melted it all down and they made a golden calf. And they're saying, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And So Moses in his indignation shatters the tablets. And yet Moses would be the one who would also intercede for the people. And God would be gracious to them and not wipe them out, but renew his covenant with them. So Moses goes up the mountain a second time in Exodus 33 and 34. And when Moses goes up the second time to receive the tablets, Moses makes a request of God. He says, God, show me your glory. I want to see you face to face. I want to experience you. I want to get a sense of you. I want to know you for who you are. And then God tells Moses in Exodus 33, He says, listen, I I will show myself to you, but I can't show all of me to you. Because anyone who sees me face to face will ultimately die. So what I'll do for you, Moses, is I'll set you in the cleft of a rock and I'll cover your face and I'll pass by you and you can essentially see my backside glory, Moses. Right? You can see my backside because you can't see my front side. You can't see my face. You can only see my back. And so this is what God does in Exodus chapter 34 in verse 5. Listen to what... What we find there. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That's what you see in Exodus 33 and 34. Look at the similarities with Mark chapter 9. Right? There's a mountain. There's a cloud. There's glory. There's voice from the cloud. Moses is there. Right, all these similarities, now what, what you need to recognize is there's a big difference, because this is not Mount Sinai reproduced. Because there's a significant difference. And here's a significant difference, is that while Moses, when he, remember when he comes down the mountain, he's got to kind of put a veil over his face after he meets with the Lord, because he's so radiant. Right, Even just that seeing God's backside glory, Moses reflects the glory of God in the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun because the moon has no light of its own. So the sun, when it shines on it, the moon reflects that light. And so that's why it goes through different phases throughout the month because the earth is blocking portions of the light shining on the moon. And so the moon reflects light. It has no light inherent to itself. That's what Moses is. He reflects the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But listen, there's a big difference between Moses and Jesus because while Moses reflects the glory of God, Jesus radiates the glory of God. See, he's not dependent upon someone else to shine upon him so he can reflect it. It's ultimately coming from him. He's radiating it forward. He produces it. He is the source of it. Jesus does not point to the glory of God like the other prophets. He doesn't point to the glory of God like the law. Rather, he is the glory of God in human form. The author of Hebrews says it this way as you go forward from the two verses we read earlier in verse 3 of Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You know That word literally there when he talks about He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Uh, That word exact imprint literally refers to the way they used to stamp coinage in the ancient world. They would put Caesar's head, whoever was emperor at that time, they would put his head on whatever coins were produced during his reign. So they would take a, 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 a mold or a stamp and they would press it down on the molten hot metal and stamp the image of the emperor onto that coin as it was traded in throughout the empire. We do the same in our day. We put the heads of presidents on different coinage that we produce. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, is that Jesus is the exact imprint, he's the exact representation. He is stamped with the glory of God. He radiates it because he's the exact representation of God. He's not one who is like God, he is God. He's not reflecting the glory of God, he's radiating the glory Of God. And as such, as one who is God and radiates the glory of God, the beauty of God, the splendor of God, listen, He is the only one worthy of our worship. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets, church. He's done what you and I could not do. And therefore, we ought to, as Moses does on the mountain himself in Exodus 34, fall on our knees and worship. He is the object of our worship. See, what what we see here in the text is He's radiating so brightly the glory of God is that what this truth does is it destroys all the middle ground for us. destroys all neutrality. So we can't say the silly thing that some would say is like Jesus is just a good teacher. No, He's either a megalomaniac and narcissist or He is God. There is no third way. There is no middle ground. And so what, we, what the, the authors of the Scriptures are communicating as Mark in, is communicating to us, what the author of Hebrews communicates to us, what Paul communicates to us in uh, Colossians chapter 1 is that there is no middle ground. You either must say that Jesus is a narcissist, the, the worst kind of narcissist, or you must say that Jesus is God, Lord, and Christ and fall on your knees and worship Him you can't just say i like a few things he has to say so he's the object of our worship third thing that we learn here about jesus is that he is not only the object of our worship but the mediator for our worship now if you remember if you were with us a few weeks ago we talked about what a mediator is and what they do so i'm going to sum it up by saying this a mediator is one who represents one person or a group before another person or a group it's what a lawyer does for their for um the party they represent in legal court cases before the jury or before the judge. Right, so the lawyer represents the defendant or the plaintiff before the jury or before the judge. They speak for them. They, they speak on their behalf. They represent them. And I want you to know that throughout Christian history, through the Old Testament and the New, and in so many other even religious contexts, even other world religions, there's always been a need for a mediator. There's always been a need for someone who would stand between us and God. You see, when God came down on Mount Sinai, He descended in a cloud. He descended in a cloud before Moses. And that's what, the, what, what, what has come to be known as God's Shekinah glory. Right? His real presence among His people. And when God comes down on the mountain to Moses, He speaks from that cloud, which signifies that His raw presence is there with Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. And in fact, God says, this is what is fatal for you. My raw presence. If you were to see me face to face, if I were to envelop you, if I were to overtake you, if I were to overshadow you, if I were to embrace you, You would not live. To come face to face with the glory of God will ultimately destroy us. This is what God said to Moses way back in Exodus. And this is why God put Moses in the crack and allows Moses only to see his backside as he passes by, because God's holiness and God's glory will consume human men and women in our sinfulness. This is why they needed priests. This is why they needed sacrifices. This is why they needed temples. And this is why they needed tabernacles. They needed places and people to mediate, to stand between God and man and represent men before God. Now, if you notice in Exodus 34 and 35, when Moses comes down the mountain again, one of the first things they do is they set up a tent. They set up a tabernacle, a place for Moses to meet with the Lord and mediate God's relationship and presence to His people. And this is what leads to Peter's suggestion in the text. Because when you first read it, you're like, what? why does he say we should set up tents? Go camping. Jesus, let's just go camping. Listen to what he says in verse 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter is out of his mind scared. He's ridiculously apprehensive, right? He is quivering in his boots. That's his emotional state in that moment. So he says, Jesus, let us just set up some tents. We can make three of them. You can stay in one. Moses can stay in one. Elijah can stay in one. Now, why does Jesus or Peter make that suggestion out of his fear? The only way you understand why Peter would suggest that and that would be prompted by his fear and by his terror is if you understand that the word translated tense here is actually the Greek word tabernacle. 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 See, when the glory of God came down on Mount Sinai, they constructed the tabernacle because they needed something to shield them from the raw presence of God. The Shekinah glory. They needed something to keep them from being face to face with God. So they make a tent. Now notice what happens next in our text in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. See what happens next? The cloud comes down. The Shekinah glory appears. It overshadows them. It envelops them. It embraces them. It consumes them. And they don't die. They don't die. Why? Why don't they die? Here's why. Because the thing that Moses, right, the thing that Moses only got a glimpse of, Peter, James, and John come face to face with him, they don't die. And the reason is this, is because Jesus is able to give what Moses can't give through the law. Jesus is able to give what Elijah can't give through his prophecy. See, only Jesus is able to stand between us and the raw presence of, power, majesty, beauty, holiness, and glory of God so that we would not be consumed by it. So we could experience it, but not be destroyed. That's why whenever the cloud lifts, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, only Jesus remains Peter says we need something to shield us from the raw presence of God. And Mark is telling us that... only thing that can shield you from the raw presence of God, to allow you to experience Him, to have relationship with Him, to see Him and not be consumed or destroyed by Him, is Jesus. He is the only sufficient mediator, because Jesus is not just the God who's on the other side of this massive gap that spans between God and humanity, but He is the bridge between man and God. He is the tabernacle to end all tabernacles, the Temple to end all temples. He is the priest to end all priests and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So when the cloud comes down, they sense the reality of God, the nearness of his presence, the delight of the Father in the Son as he professes his love for his Son, and they get a sense in the heart of the majesty and wonder of God. And listen, church, that is what we call worship. That's what we call worship, and it can only take place through Jesus. He's the mediator for our worship. He welcomes us into the presence of God. Listen, which is what your heart longs for and what my heart longs for at its deepest level. All of your desires for other things in this life is, a, is a, just a, 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 a pale, a pale, dim Reflection of your desire for the God who's made you in His image and desires deeply to have relationship with you. And the only place that desire can fully be realized is in worship. And listen, worship is not merely testifying the truths about God. It's tasting those truths and tasting them as those truths that are good and delightful and nourishing, and filling. See, worship isn't just us r- repeating words of lyrics to songs, but it's delighting in those words, being, 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 being fed by those words, by those lyrics. Worship's not merely acknowledging God intellectually with the tip of the cap to Him on Sunday morning, saying, God, thank you very much. But what worship is, is being captivated with God through the full spectrum of human emotions, See, right now, worship for some of us looks like weeping and tears because of unexpected diagnoses and yet clinging to the goodness of God in the midst of all the uncertainty. For others, worship looks like celebration and and delight in God because God is the giver of every good gift and He far outweighs every gift that you might enjoy. So even if that gift is stripped away, you have Him. Him. That's what it means, not only to tip the cap to God, but to be captivated by Him through the full spectrum of every every emotion. Of, Of your doubt, of saying, God, as we'll see next week, I believe, help my unbelief. See, worship is not merely saying that God is real, but it's sensing His realness on your heart. And that's what you and I long for more than anything. And it will only come as you come to God through Jesus with Him as the object of your worship because He has fulfilled all of God's just commands. And He is the fruition of all of God's glorious promises. That's where you see His glory. That's where you see His glory. Now, Two things before we're done. First of all, why do we need this? Why do we need this? Listen, church, the reason that you and I need this so desperately in our walk with Christ, in our Christian discipleship, is for this reason, because you and I will become what we behold. Listen, in in the text, whenever they come down the mountain, what does Jesus begin to speak to them about? I find this fascinating. In verses nine and thirteen, listen to what he says again. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man about of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. See, when they come down the mountain, after seeing Jesus in all of his glory, having their eyes opened to the radiance of the glory of God in the person of Christ, Jesus immediately begins to speak of his death and resurrection, suffering many things and being treated with contempt. In addition, when the disciples ask about the appearance of Elijah, who would come first to restore all things, Jesus says, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. He speaks again of suffering and death. Right? Because if it, it, that reference, if you go back into Malachi, the very end of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, in fact, the very last verses of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, God says that there's a day that's coming, the day of the Lord, in which God would come to judge and heal Right? So his wrath would come and his restoration would follow. But before that day, he says Elijah would come. And Elijah would come to restore all things. Listen to what Malachi says in the very last verses of the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 5, behold, uh, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. So, from that point of that prophecy, the scribes and teachers of the law said, Listen, before the day of the Lord comes, in which God would come to judge and heal, right, his wrath will be poured out and restoration would follow. Before that day comes, Elijah's gonna come. And Jesus says, Elijah has come in John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? They imprisoned him, and then they beheaded him. So John himself, one who would identify with Jesus, was rejected and suffered. So Jesus, when they come down the mountain, the the, the words on Jesus' lips isn't like, Hey, guys, how cool was that? Right? Did you see all of that? And just wait. Right? We're going to blow this thing open. Because they've seen Elijah, and so they're thinking, okay, the day of the Lord's here, Jesus. What's all this speaking of suffering and death? Let's get to work. Let's overthrow. Let's push people out. Let's restore. Let's heal. And Jesus says, listen, was it not also written about the Son of Man that he must be treated with contempt and suffer? I'm going to die, but I'll also be raised. And listen, if you're going to identify with me, you're going to experience the same kind of treatment. That's what happens as soon as they come down off the mountain, as they're making their way down. Now, let's push rewind for just a moment at the end of chapter 8 and take a full run at this. In the end of chapter 8, Jesus says, If you want to be my disciple, you need to build your identity on me. You need to side with me through self-denial and serve me through dying to your agenda and desires. Then in chapter 2, verses uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 2 to 8, you see Peter, James, and John have a literal mountaintop experience where they see Jesus transfigured. Right? They, have, they behold the glory of Jesus. Then, the very next verses, Jesus comes down the mountain speaking of His rejection, suffering, and death, and the rejection, suffering, and death of those who would identify with Him. Now, let's put all this together And uh, uh, here's what I believe Mark is trying to communicate to us. Unless you behold the glory of Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets, as the object of our worship and the one who stands between us and the raw presence of God so that we are not consumed or destroyed and mediates for us our worship, which is ultimately what our hearts were made for. Unless you behold His glory... You will never become the kind of person who finds their identity in Him, sides with Him through self-denial, serves Him through dying to their agendas and desires, and is willing to suffer for His sake. Because what and who you behold always shapes what and who you become. This is so vital to our Christian discipleship. See, listen, while you... Let me let me say this first. Beholding Jesus will make us more and more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, the apostle Paul writes these words. I want you to hear what he says. He says, Now the Lord is spirit. All right, let me back up into verse 16. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil that covered their eyes, he's speaking of through uh, Moses and the prophets and the hardening of their heart. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." Paul says the way that we become like Jesus is by beholding Jesus, seeing more of His glory, having a deeper sense of His presence in our lives, of the reality of Jesus, of the beauty of Jesus, of the splendor of Jesus, of the majesty of Jesus, of the radiance of the glory of God emanating from Jesus. Paul says this... What, beholding Him, gazing upon His glory, is the way that you become like Him. In fact, Jesus refers to something similar to this in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 22 and 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Some of you heard me talk about this before. But listen, Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 6, the eyes are the window to the soul. Kind of like a Hallmark card, right? Very sentimental, very sappy. Listen, it's great emotions because when you stare into somebody's eyes, you see into the depths and recesses of their soul and you see just how much they love you and they see just how much you love them. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the eyes are not the window to the soul, but he says they're the lamp to the soul or lamp to the body. What what that means is this, that the eyes are not passive panes of glass through which we look, but they are active sources of light or darkness to fill our lives with those things they are fixed upon. Jesus says what you fix your gaze upon will determine what grabs a hold of your attention, what captures your affection, and what ultimately determines your actions. What we gaze at will guide us, and it will either illumine or darken our lives. One of the two. If our eyes are healthy and they're fixed on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and praiseworthy and lovely and commendable and excellent, then our bodies will be full of light However, if our eyes are bad and fixed on things that are false and dishonorable and unjust and polluted and corrupt and foul and lamentable and poor or pain-producing idols, then our whole bodies will be full of darkness. Jesus says, listen, those are the options. What you fix your eyes on as the lamp of your body. And listen, there is... no one more true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent or worthy of praise than Jesus. So fix your eyes on Him. Because listen, the people that we are infatuated with, we fix our gaze on, don't we? You see it all the time. In the celebrity culture in which we live, if you spend all of your time right on social media following particular celebrities... You spend all of your time looking at where they eat and where they shop and what they wear and the kind of home they live, the deodorant they buy, what they are marketing, okay, the messages they are putting out, the brands that they are supporting. If you are, have your eyes fixed upon that individual, you know what happens by a trickle-down effect in your life? They, their actions, their character shapes yours. So the way you see them treating people, you treat people, right? The things that they value, then you begin to value because you're fixated on them. And so listen, if that is true in the way that we live our lives, right? With sports stars or movie stars or people that we deem to be popular in our schools, or in our neighborhoods or our communities, if we're fixing our gaze on them and their character is shaping our character, their actions are determining our actions, we got to go out and buy that deodorant now because we saw them put it on their pits, right? Then how much more so will fixing our eyes and beholding the glory of Jesus transform us from one degree of glory to another into. His likeness. What we are looking at will lead us, church. What we are looking at will lead us. And so, listen if we spend all of our time gazing at goods and experiences and possessions. Right? New rims for our trucks and new devices and technology for our home. You know what that will do to our souls? If that's what we're spending our days fixated on, it will create within us a covetous spirit that will want more and more and more and more. If that's what we're looking at, if that's what we're staring at, that's what will shape us. Right? The same is true about news outlets, particularly in this day and age. And listen, I don't care which side of the of the aisle you might fall on, whether you watch CNN or Fox News, whether you are full bore into the left-wing streams of media or full bore into the right-wing streams of media. If you spend your days sitting in a recliner, particularly if you're not at work right now, watching Fox News or watching CNN and you're just staring and consuming and beholding and gazing at that, You know what that will create in you? It will shape you into that kind of person that you're hearing them, the information they're dispensing, you're going to begin to be transformed by and changed by. I had a conversation with a friend recently who said his father was considering selling his home in the Metroplex and moving to East Texas because he just couldn't take it anymore. Right? All of the unrest... He couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take any more of, of the political divisiveness. He couldn't take any more of the, what he perceived to be the, 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 the conspiracy of corona, right? He couldn't take any more of that stuff. And what I said to my friend was, listen, if he's going to do that because his blood pressure was up, his anxiety was up, because he spent all day staring at one particular news outlet... And I said, if he's going to do that in order to try to better his health, he needs to move somewhere where there's not internet. He needs to move somewhere where there's not cable television. He needs to move somewhere where there's not satellite, where he can no longer get that particular cable news outlet to inflame him and make him into that kind of person who is anxious about everything and is trusting the Lord about nothing. See, what you stare at will shape you. Church, if you spend your days gazing, at Jesus, if He is your north star, then He will lead you and He will shape you. If you behold His glory, you get a sense of Him on your life and He will transform you from one degree of glory to another. So how do we do this? Listen, as we close, let me say one thing to you. And it's this. You've got to put yourself in the proper position. You gotta put yourself in the proper position. Listen, you cannot bring down the glory, but you can go up the mountain. Right? You can't manufacture or manipulate those moments in which you have a palpable sense of the reality of God in your life. You can't manufacture those moments in which the nearness of God it is, it's so thick and real where you can taste it on your tongue. You can't manufacture those moments. But what you can do is put yourself in a position to experience them. And there's at least four ways, four means of grace God has given us to fix our gaze on the glory of Christ. And the first one is this, is through His Word. See, you and I need daily to come back to the Scriptures And to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to daily consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we will not grow weary and lose heart as we say no to ourselves and as we say yes to God and serve Him in spite of the challenges, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the rejection. How did you fix your eyes on this one? who considered not equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the very nature of a servant all the way to the cross so that he could stand between us and God, bearing God's wrath, but also bringing for us access to God and His palpable real presence as you read about Him in the Scriptures. Not just reading the Bible to look for a little inspirational quote for the day, Right, But you read the Bible looking for who Jesus is and what He has done. Not just how what you should go and do, but what He has done. Then you, from one degree of glory, will be transformed and changed into His likeness. Second of all, conversation with God through prayer. See, we need to come to a father who knows how to give only good gifts to his children. Do you believe that, Church, that when you come to Him and you ask Him, do you believe that He wants to honor that request that you would get a fuller picture of the glory of God in the person of Christ by the power of the Spirit in your life? I think He wants to honor that request. You can come and ask about a hundred things that He may not honor, but this is one thing that I believe He desires to honor that you would ask Him to secure our hearts for His name and renown. Third, the worship of God. The worship of God. And listen, even while we are separated, I want you to know that there is a great encouragement that comes whenever we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we obey that command by gathering and not neglecting or forsaking the assembly of the saints. But even while we are separated into our living rooms and dining rooms across our community, there is still opportunity to sing, for our hearts to be united even though our bodies are not. And there is still opportunity for you to do that personally on a daily basis and not just waiting for your Sunday morning fix. But to take songs, to take psalms, to take truths of God and sing those back to Him, that you would leave your home with a song in your heart on a daily basis. See, parents, that's what your kids need more from you than just about anything else in this life, that you would be one who lives to worship God with a song in your heart every day, so that as you sing to Him, as your heart rejoices in Him, you know what? You'll find less and less that you're provoking your children to anger, And you'll find more and more that you're disciplining them out of the care and compassion of the Lord. You'll find more and more that your correction is not out of an overbearing, harsh tone, but it is out of a love and compassion and a brokenness. All that comes from worship. And then fourth, the people of God. We need Christian community that's spurring us on to love and good deeds. And in these days in which we are not able all to assemble together, whether it be through Sunday morning services or through small groups in our homes. I know some of you are tuning in to a hybrid version of life group even. And that's hard and that's challenging. But I want to continue to encourage you to press into that, to have opportunity to be encouraged and spurred on by those who would encourage you toward love and good deeds, who would say, take your eyes off of your situation And place them on your Savior so that you might know and experience the reality of His love for you. And that might give you a deep sense of security in the midst of all of this uncertainty. These are the means of grace God has given us. His word, prayer, His people, and worship. And through those we're able to behold more of the glory of God the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets, the one for whom all of our worship rises and the one through whom all of our worship rises. And as it rises, church, what you will find is that you will be transformed more into His likeness and find your discipleship to be more fruitful than it ever has been before. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we are grateful for our time this morning in Your Word. And Father, we ask that You would help us, as the author of Hebrews says, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who wrote our faith and who completed our faith, all for joy that He saw out ahead of Him the joy of being reunited to You and reuniting us to You. So that as His Spirit, as Your Spirit was poured out upon all flesh, that we would have One who would stand as a mediator between us so that Your presence wouldn't consume and destroy us but your presence would heal and restore us. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening who's under the sound of my voice today that does not know Jesus as their mediator, as the one who went to the cross for them to bear Your wrath so that we can enjoy Your presence, that You would bring them to a place of conviction and repentance, and conversion. They would place their faith and trust in Him. That they would build their lives around Him. And they would enjoy Him. And Father, for those of us who have, I pray that You would transform us from one degree of glory to another as we see Jesus more clearly, through Your Word, as we pray and ask for that sight, that perception through worship on a daily basis and through fellowship with your people. May we not become more and more like the celebrities that we see in our culture, but maybe become more and more like the Christ that we see at the center of the Bible. We pray in His name. Amen.